Volume Two, Chapter Ten of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. During the whole forenoon of the third of September, the little village of Woodchurch presented a busy and bustling, though in truth it could not be called a gay scene. The smart dresses of the dragoons, the number of men and horses, the soldiers riding quickly along the road from time to time, the occasional sound of the trumpet, the groups of villagers and gaping children, all had an animating effect, and there was, mingled with the other sights which the place presented, quite a sufficient portion of human misery, in various forms, to sadden any but a very unfeeling heart. For some time after the affray was over, every ten minutes, was seen to roll in one of the small narrow carts of the country, half filled with straw and bearing a wounded man, or at most two. In the same manner several corpses also were carried in, and the number of at least fifty prisoners, in separate detachments, with hanging hands and pinioned arms, were marched slowly through the street to the houses which had been marked out as affording the greatest security. The good people of Woodchurch laughed and talked freely with the dragoons, made many inquiries concerning the events of the skirmish, and gave every assistance to the wounded soldiers, but it was remarked with surprise by several of the officers that they showed no great sympathy with the smugglers, either prisoners or wounded, gazed upon the parties who were brought in with an unfriendly air, and turning round to each other commented in low tones, with very little appearance of compassion. "'Aye, that's one of the Ramneys gang,' said the stout blacksmith of the place, to his friend and neighbour the wheelwright, as some ten or twelve men passed before them with their wrists tied. "'And that fellow in the smart green coat is another,' rejoined the wheelwright. "'He's a man who, I dare say, hamstringed my mare, because I wouldn't let him have her for the last run.' "'That's Tom Angel,' observed the blacksmith. "'He's to be married to Ginny Ramley, they say.' "'He'd be married to a halter first, I've a notion,' answered the wheelwright, "'and then instead of an angel he'll make a devil. "'He's one of the worst of them, bad as they all are. "'A pretty jail delivery we shall have in the next sizes.' "'A good county delivery, too,' replied the blacksmith. "'As men have been killed, it's felony, that's clear. "'So hemp will be dear, Mr. Slatterly.' "'By the above conversation the feelings of the people of Woodchurch "'towards the smugglers,' at that particular time, may be easily divined, but the reader must not suppose that they were influenced alone by the very common tendency of men's nature to side with the winning party, for such was not altogether the case, though perhaps they would not have ventured to show their dislike to the smugglers so strongly had they been more successful. As long as the worthy gentlemen, who had now met with so severe a reverse, had contented themselves with merely running contraband articles, even as long as they had done nothing more than take a man's horse for their own purposes, without his leave, or use his premises, whether he liked it or not, as a place of concealment for their smuggled goods, they were not only indifferent, but even friendly, for man has always a sufficient portion of the adventurer at his heart to have a fellow-feeling for all his brethren engaged in rash and perilous enterprises. But the smugglers had grown insolent and domineering from long success, they had not only felt themselves lords of the county, but had made others feel it, often in an insulting and often in a cruel and brutal manner. Crimes of a very serious character had been lately committed by the Ramleys and others, which, though not traced home by sufficient evidence to satisfy the law, were fixed upon them by the general voice of the people, 
and the threats of terrible vengeance which they sometimes uttered against all who opposed them, and the boastful tone in which they indulged, when speaking of their most criminal exploits, probably gained them credit for much more wickedness than they really committed. Thus their credit with the country people was certainly on the decline when they met with the disaster which has been lately recorded, and their defeat and dispersion was held by the inhabitants of Woodchurch as an augury of better times, when their women would be able to pass from village to village, even after dusk, in safety and free from insult, and their cattle might be left out in the fields all night, without being injured, either by wantonness or in lawless uses. It will be understood that in thus speaking I allude alone to the land smugglers, a race altogether different from their fellow labourers of the sea, whom the people looked upon with a much more favourable eye, and who, though rash and daring men enough, were generally a good-humoured, free-hearted body, spending the money that they had gained at the peril of their lives, or their freedom, with a liberal hand and in a kindly spirit. Almost every inhabitant of Woodchurch had some cause of complaint against the Ramleys gang, and, to say the truth, Mr. Radford himself was by no means popular in the county. A selfish and a cunning man is almost always speedily found out by the lower classes, even when he makes an effort to conceal it. But Mr. Radford took no such trouble, for he gloried in his acuteness, and if he had chosen a motto, it probably would have been every man for himself. His selfishness, too, took several of the most offensive forms. He was ostentatious, he was haughty, and on the strength of riches acquired, everyone knew how. He looked upon himself as a very great man, and treated all the inferior classes, except those of whom he had need, to use their own expression, as dirt under his feet. All the villagers, therefore, were well satisfied to think that he had met with a check at last, and many of the good folks of Woodchurch speculated upon the probability of two or three out of so great a number of prisoners, giving such evidence as would bring that worthy gentleman within the gripe of the law. Such were the feelings of the people of that place, as well as those of many a neighbouring village, and the scene presented by the captive and wounded smugglers as they were led along was viewed with indifference by some, and with pleasure by others. Two or three of the women, indeed, bestowed kindly attention upon the wounded men, moved by that beautiful compassion which is rarely, if ever, wanting in a female heart. But the male part of the population took little share, if any, in such things, and were quite willing to aid the soldiers in securing the prisoners, till they could be marched off to prison. The first excitement had subsided before noon, but still, from time to time, some little bustle took place, a prisoner was caught and brought in, and carried to the public house where the colonel had established himself. An orderly galloped through the street, messengers came and went, and four or five soldiers with their horses ready saddled remained before the door of the inn, ready at a moment's notice for any event. The commanding officer did not appear at all beyond the doors of his temporary abode but continued writing, giving orders, examining the prisoners, and those who brought them, in the same room which he had entered when first he arrived. As few of the people of the place had seen him, a good deal of curiosity was excited by his quietness and reserve. It was whispered amongst the women that he was the handsomest man ever seen, and the men said he was a very fine fellow, and ought to be made a general of. The barmaid communicated to her intimate friends that when he took off his cloak she had seen a star upon the breast of his coat, and that her master seemed to know more of him, if he liked to tell, 
but the landlord was as silent as a mouse. These circumstances, however, kept up a little crowd before the entrance of the inn, consisting of persons anxious to behold the hero of the day, and just at the hour of two the carriage of Mr. Croyland rolled in, through the people, at the usual slow and deliberate pace to which that gentleman accustomed his carriage-horses. The large heavy door of the large heavy vehicle was opened by the two servants who accompanied it, and out stepped Mr. Croyland with his back as straight and stiff as a poker, and his gold-headed cane in his hand. The landlord, at the sight of an equipage, which he knew well, came out in haste, bowing low and welcoming Mr. Croyland in the hearty good old style. The nabob himself unbent a little to his friend of the inn, and after asking him how he did, and bestowing a word or two on the state of the weather, proceeded to say, "'And now, Miles, I wish to speak a word or two with Captain Osborne, who is in your house, I believe.' "'No, Mr. Croyland,' replied the landlord, looking at the visitor with some surprise. "'The captain is not here. He is down at Nelly's Souths, and his name's not Osborne either, but Irby.' "'Then who the deuce have you got here with all these soldiers about the door?' demanded Croyland. "'The colonel of the regiment, sir,' answered Miles. "'There has only been one captain here all day, and that's Captain Irby.' "'Not right of the lad, not right of the lad!' exclaimed Mr. Croyland rather testily. "'No one should keep a man waiting, especially an old man, and more especially still a cross old man. "'But I'll come in and stop a bit, for I want to see the young gentleman.' "'Where the devil did he go, I wonder, after this skirmish? "'Hello, you, sir, Corporal. "'Pray, sir, what's your officer's name?' "'The man put up his hand in military fashion, "'and with a strong Hibernian accent demanded, "'Is it the Colonel you're inquiring about, sir? "'Why, then, his name is Lieutenant Colonel Sir Henry Leighton, "'Knight of the Bath, and mighty cold weather it was, too, "'when he got the bath. "'So I didn't envy him his ducking.' "'Oh, ho!' cried Mr. Croyland, putting his finger sagaciously to the side of his nose. "'Be so good as to send up that card to Lieutenant Colonel Sir Henry Leighton, Knight of the Bath, and tell him that the gentleman whose appellation it bears is here, inquiring for one Captain Osborne, whom he once saw.' The corporal took the card himself to the top of the stairs, and delivered the message with as much precision as his intellect could muster, to some person who seemed to be waiting on the outside of a door above. "'Why, you fool!' cried a voice immediately. "'I told you if Mr. Croyland came to show him up. "'Sir Henry will see him.' "'And immediately a servant in plain clothes "'descended to perform his function himself.' "'Very grand,' murmured Mr. Croyland as he followed. "'The door above was immediately thrown open, "'and his name announced, "'but walking slowly he had not entered the room "'before the young officer, "'who has more than once been before the reader's eyes, "'was half across the floor to meet him.' He was now dressed in full uniform, and certainly a finer or more commanding-looking man had seldom, if ever, met Mr. Croyland's view. Advancing with a frank and pleasant smile, he led him to the armchair which he had just occupied. It was the only one in the room, and after thanking him for his visit, turned to the servant and bade him shut the door. "'I'm in some surprise, and in some doubt, Sir Henry,' said Mr. Croyland, with his sharp eyes twinkling a little, "'I came here to see one Captain Osborne, and I find a gentleman very like him, in truth, but certainly a much smarter-looking person, whom I am told is Lieutenant Colonel Sir Henry Leighton, Knight of the Bath, etc., 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 and yet he seems to look upon old Zachary Croyland as a friend, too.' "'He does, from his heart, I can assure you, Mr. Croyland,' 
replied the young officer, and I trust you will ever permit him to do so. But if it becomes us to deceive no man, it becomes us still more not to deceive a friend. And on that account, it was I asked your presence here to explain to you one or two circumstances, which I thought it but just you should know before I ventured to present myself at your house. Pray speak, Sir Henry, replied Mr. Croyland. I am all ears. The young officer paused for a moment, and a shadow came over his brow as if something painful passed through his mind. But then, with a slight motion of his hand, as if he would have waved away unpleasant thoughts, he said, I must first tell you, my dear sir, that I am the son of the Reverend Henry Layton, whom you once knew, and the nephew of that Charles Osborne, with whom you are also intimately acquainted. The dearest friend I ever had in the world, replied Mr. Croyland, blowing his nose violently. "'Then I trust you will extend the same friendship to his nephew,' said the Colonel. "'I don't know, I don't know,' answered Mr. Croyland. "'That must depend upon circumstances. "'I'm a very crabbed, tiresome old fellow, Sir Henry, "'and my friendships are not very sudden ones. "'But I have patted your head many a time when you were a child, and that's something. "'Then you are very like your father, and a little like your uncle. "'That's something more. "'So we may get on, I think.' "'But what have you got to say more? "'And what in the name of fortune made you call yourself Captain Osborne "'to an old friend of your family like myself?' "'I did not do so, if you recollect,' replied the young officer. "'It was my friend Digby who gave me that name, "'and you must pardon me if, on many accounts, I yielded to the trick, "'for I was coming down here on a difficult service, "'one that I am not accustomed to and do not like.' and I was desirous of seeing a little of the country and of learning something of the habits of the persons with whom I had to deal before I was called upon to act. "'And devilish well you did act when you set about it,' cried Mr. Croyland. "'I watched you this morning over the wall and wondered a little that you did not come on to my house at once.' "'It is upon that subject that I must now speak,' said Sir Henry Leighton, taking a grave tone. "'and I must touch upon many painful subjects in the past. "'Just when I was about to write to you, Mr. Croyland, "'to say that I would come, in accordance with your kind invitation, "'I learned that your niece, Miss Croyland, is staying at your house. "'Now I know not whether you have been informed that long ago—' "'Oh, yes, I know all about that,' answered Mr. Croyland quickly. "'There was a great deal of love and courting and all that sort of boy and girl stuff.' "'It must be man and woman stuff now, Mr. Croyland,' replied the young officer, "'for I must tell you fairly and at once, I love her as deeply, as truly as ever. "'Years have made no difference, other scenes have made no change. "'The same as I went, in every thought and feeling, I have returned, "'and I can never think of her without emotion, "'which I can never speak to her without expressing.' "'Indeed, indeed,' said Mr. Croyland, apparently in some surprise.' "'That does make some difference.' "'That is what I feared,' continued Sir Henry Leighton. "'Your brother disapproved of our engagement. "'In consequence of it, he behaved to my father in a way on which I will not dwell. "'You would not have behaved in such a way, I know, "'and although I should think any means justifiable to see your niece "'when in her father's mansion, to tell her how deeply I love her still, "'and to ask her to sacrifice fortune and everything to share a soldier's fate,' "'yet I did not think it would be right or honourable "'to come into the house of a friend under a feigned name "'and seek his niece, for seek her I should wherever I found her, "'when he might share the same views as his brother, 
or at all events think himself bound to support them. In short, Mr. Croyland, I knew that when you were aware of my real name and of my real feelings, it would make a difference, and a great one. Not the difference you think, Harry, replied the old gentleman, holding out his hand to him, but quite the reverse. I'll tell you what, young man, I think you a devilish, fine, high-spirited, honourable fellow, and the only one I ever saw whom I should like to marry my Edith. So don't say a word more about it. Come and dine with me to-day, as soon as you've got all this job over. You shall see her, you shall talk to her, you shall make all your arrangements together, and if there's a post-chaise in the country, I'll put you in and shut the door with my own hands. My brother is an old fool, and worse than an old fool, too, something very like an old rogue. At least so he behaved to your father, and not much better to his own child. But I don't care a straw about him, and never did. I never intend to humour one of his whims. Sir Henry Leighton pressed the old gentleman's hand in his, with much emotion, for the prospect seemed brightening to him, and the dark clouds which had so long overshadowed his course appeared to be breaking away. He had been hitherto like a traveller on a strong and spirited horse, steadfastly pursuing his course and making his way onward, with vigour and determination, but with a dark and threatening sky overhead, and not even a gleam of hope to lead him on. Distinction, honours, competence, command, he had obtained by his own talents and his own energies. He was looked up to by those below him, by his equals, even by many of his superiors. The eyes of all who knew him turned towards him as to one who was destined to be a leading man in his day. Everything seemed fair and smiling around him, and no eye could see the cloud that overshadowed him but his own. But what to him were honours or wealth or the world's applause if the love of his early years were to remain blighted for ever? And in the tented field, the city or the court, the shadow had still remained upon his heart's best feelings, not checking his energies but saddening all his enjoyments. How often is it in the world that we thus see the bright, the admired, the powerful, the prosperous, and the grave hue of painful thoughts upon the brow, the never unmingled smile, the lapses of gloomy meditation, and ask ourselves, what is the secret sorrow in the midst of all this success? What is the fountain of darkness that turns this stream of sunshine grey? What the canker-worm that preys upon so bright a flower? Deep in the recesses of the heart it lies gnawing in silence, but never ceasing, and never satisfied. Now, however, there was a light in the heavens for him, and whether it was one of those rays that sometimes break through a storm and then pass away, no more to be seen till the day dies in darkness, or whether it was the first glad harbinger of a serene evening after a stormy morning, the conclusion of this tale must show. "'I must tell you something, my dear boy,' continued Mr. Croyland, forgetting that he was speaking to the colonel of a dragoon regiment, and going back at a leap to early days. Your father was my old schoolfellow and dear companion. Your uncle was the best friend I ever had, and the founder of my fortune, for to his interest I owe my first appointment to India, and, I and to his generosity the greater part of my outfit and my passage. To them I am indebted for everything, to my brother for nothing, and I look upon you as a relation much more than upon him, so I have no very affectionate motives for countenancing or assisting him in doing what is not right. I'll tell you something more, too, Harry. I was sure that you would do what is honourable and right, 
not because you have got a good name in the world, for I'm always doubtful of the world's good names, and besides, I never heard the name of Sir Harry Leighton till this blessed day, but because you were the son of one honest man, and the nephew of another, and a good wild frank boy too. So I was quite sure you would not come to my house under a false name, when my niece was in it, without at all events letting me into the secret, and you have justified my confidence, young man. I would not have done such a thing for the world, replied the young officer, but may I ask then, my dear Mr. Croyland, if you recognise me in the stagecoach, for it must be eighteen or nineteen years since you saw me. Don't call me Mr. Croyland, said the old gentleman abruptly. Call me Zachary, or Nabob, or Misanthrope, or Bear, or anything but that. As to your question, I say no. I did not recognise you the least in the world. I saw in your face something like the faces of old friends, and I liked it on that account. But as for the rest of the matter, there's a little secret, my boy, a little bit of a puzzle. By one way or another, it matters not what, I had found out that Captain Osborne was my old friend Leighton's son, but till I came here to-day I had no notion that he was colonel of the regiment, and a knight of the bath to boot, as your corporal fellow took care to inform me. I thought you had been going under a false name, perhaps, all this time, and fancied I should find Captain Osborne quite well known in the regiment. I had a shrewd notion, too, that you had sent for me to tell the secret, but I was determined to let you explain yourself without helping you at all, for I am a great deal fonder of men's actions than their words, Harry. "'Is it fair to ask who told you who I was?' asked Sir Henry Leighton. "'My friend Digby has some—' "'No, no,' cried Mr. Croyland. "'It wasn't that good, rash, rattle-pate, coxcomb of a fellow who is only fit to be caged with little Zara. "'And then they may live together very well like two monkeys in a show-box.' "'No, he had nothing to do with it, though he has been busy enough since he came here, "'shooting partridges and fighting young Radfords and all that sort of thing.' "'Fighting young Radfords!' exclaimed Sir Henry Leighton, "'suddenly grasping the sheath of his sword with his right hand. "'He should not have done that, at least without letting me know.' "'Why, he knew nothing about it himself,' replied Mr. Croyland, "'till the minute it took place.' The young vagabond followed him to my house, so I civilly told my brother's pet that I didn't want to see him, and he walked away with your friend Digby just across the lawn in front of the house, when after a few minutes of pleasant conversation the baronet applies me with horsewhip, with considerable unction and perseverance, to the shoulders of Richard Radford, Esquire, Junior, upon which out comes the pinking irons, and in the course of the scuffle "'Sir Edward receives a little hole in the shoulder, "'and Mr. Radford is disarmed and brought upon his knee, "'with a very unpleasant and ungentlemanlike bump upon his forehead, "'bestowed with hearty good will by the hilt of Master Digby's sword. "'Well, when he had got him there, instead of quietly poking a hole through him, "'as any man of common sense would have done, "'your friend lets him get up again and ride away, "'just as a man might be supposed to pinch a cobra that had bit him by the tail, "'and then say, "'Walk off, my friend.' "'However, so stands the matter, "'and young Radford rode away, "'vowing all sorts of vengeance. "'He'll have it, too, if he can get it, "'for he's as spiteful as a baboon. "'So I hope you've caught him, "'as he was with these smuggling vagabonds, "'that's certain.' "'Sir Henry Leighton shook his head. "'He has escaped, I am sorry to say,' he replied. "'How I cannot divine, "'for I took means to catch him "'that I thought were infallible.' All the roads through Harborne Wood were guarded, but yet in that wood all trace of him was lost. 
He left his horse in the midst of it and must have escaped by some of the bypaths. "'He's concealed in my brother's house for a hundred guineas,' cried Mr. Coyland. "'Robert's bewitched to a certainty, for nothing else but witchcraft could make a man take an owl for a cock-pheasant. "'Oh, yes, there he is, snug in Harborn House, depend upon it, feeding upon venison and turbot, "'with a magnum of claret and two bottles of port to keep him comfortable. "'A drunken, beastly, vicious brute, a cross between a wolf and a swine, "'and not without a touch of the fox either.' though the first figure is the best, for his father was the wolf and his mother the sow, and if all tales be true. He cannot be in Harborn House, I should think, replied the colonel, for my dragoon searched it, it seems, violating the laws a little, for they had no competent authority with them, and besides he could not have put himself within Digby's reach, I imagine. Then he's up in a tree, roosting in the day, like a bird of prey, rejoined Mr. Croyland in his quick way. "'It's very unlucky he has escaped. "'Very unlucky indeed.' "'At all events,' answered the young officer, "'thus much we have gained, my dear friend. "'He dare not show himself in this county for years. "'He was seen by competent witnesses "'at the head of these smugglers, "'taking an active part with them "'in resistance to lawful authority. "'Blood has been shed, "'lives have been sacrificed, "'and a felony has been committed.' so that if he is wise and can manage it, he will get out of England. If he fail of escaping or venture to show himself, he will grace the gallows, depend upon it. Heaven be praised, cries Mr. Croyland. Give me the first tidings when it is to happen, Harry, that I may order four horses and hire a window. I would not have him hanged without my seeing it for a hundred pounds. Sir Henry Leighton smiled faintly, saying, "'Those are sad sights, my dear sir, and we have too many of them in this county. "'But you have not told me from whom you received intimation "'that Captain Osborne and Henry Osborne Leighton were the same person.' "'That's a secret. That's a secret, Hal,' answered Mr. Croyland. "'So now tell me when you'll come. "'You'll be over tonight, I suppose, or have time and wisdom tamed the eagerness of love.' "'Oh, no, my dear sir,' answered Leighton. "'but I have still some business to settle here "'and have promised to be in Hythe tonight. "'Before I go, however, I will ride over for an hour or two, "'for till I have seen that dear girl again "'and have heard her feelings and her wishes from her own lips, "'my thoughts will be all in confusion. "'I shall be calmer and more reasonable afterwards.' "'Much need,' answered Mr. Croyland. "'But now I must leave you. "'I shan't say a word about it all till you come, "'for preparing people's minds is all nonsense.' "'It is only drawing them out upon the rack of expectation, "'which leaves them bruised and crushed "'with no power to resist whatever is to come afterwards. "'But don't be long, Harry, for remember that delays are dangerous.' "'Leighton promised to set out as soon as one of his messengers, "'whom he expected every instant, had returned, "'and going down with Mr. Croyland to the door of his carriage, "'he bade him adieu, and watched him as he drove away.' gratifying the eyes of the people of Woodchurch with a view of his fine person, as he stood uncovered at the door. In the meantime, Mr. Croyland took his way slowly back towards his own dwelling. What happened there during his absence we shall see presently. End of chapter 10